Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and today we're going to go to an anniversary of the, well, 1968. 1968 was a big year in in history and uh, the uh, Prague Spring was something that occurred 50 years ago and had a extraordinary event, uh, uh, effect on uh, Marxist parties, socialist parties across the world. It was when the Russians decided that they were going to send tanks into Prague when the Czechoslovakians stood up and asked for more. And uh, we, we've we got an interview that Don Sutherland did with uh, uh, Brian Ahrens from the Search Foundation uh, who, to give uh, an overview of what was happening then and what effect the... Uh, the uh, initiatives coming out of Czechoslovakia from the people had as far away as Australia. Uh, it's quite an interesting story and it's worthwhile as going back there and uh, thinking it through and the effects and why it's uh, of significance today. Uh, we're going to go on and talk to uh, the people who are uh, looking at uh, the uh, shape of Moreland, Suitcates of Dreams, the public art pro- uh, photography project celebrating the history of Moreland's multicultural and diverse society. And uh, later on, we're going to actually talk to Don Sutherland about uh, things like the Productivity Commission on Equality, Inequality, rather, and uh, also... Uh, the big changes in um, Canberra and what does that mean. And uh, because uh, Don was the Chief Industrial Officer for the AMWU, he's got something to say about the passing of Laurie Carmichael. Uh, But uh, before we move on, a little message from one of our fellow programmers. Dino Surprise Surprise! A new show starting on Thursday the 13th of September. It's a show about kids' stuff. What sort of kids' stuff? All sorts of kids' stuff. I'm Carl Pinozzo. <laughs> and I'm Daniel Salvatore Christopher Larkins Pinozzo. And we are... Playing the platters that matter. Spinning the discs with a twist. Talking the job that will keep you alive. To, to make, make sure, sure you really exist. exist. Every Thursday... From 3.30 till 4. 
right here on Free CR. 855 on your AM dial. We have giveaways and question time. We'll need you to SMS your favourite line. So tune in to find out what's going on in our world. I'm Dinah, surprise, surprise. surprise. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we'll go straight to uh, Brian Ahrens and uh, Prague Spring. Well, the Prague Spring was an attempt by the then communist leadership of Czechoslovakia to deal with uh, major problems of the uh, what came to be known as the uh, command economy, the over-centralised planning uh, and uh, lack of democracy, uh, the, if not to put too fine a point on it, the Stalinist system that had been uh, somewhat uh, moderated, uh, but nevertheless uh, there were very big problems of uh, the socialist economies of, of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and uh, a lot of unhappiness had built up within the Czechoslovak Communist Party, which led to the replacement of the former leader, Antonin Novotny, by Alexander Dubček, and under Dubček's leadership, the Czechoslovak Communist Party set out to reform the system to the outside world, uh, what the Prague Spring meant was a lot more democracy, uh, the uh, ability for people to speak their minds. But underlying the program of the Prague Spring really was an attempt to reform the socialist economy, uh, to loosen it up and to deal with the problems of over-centralised planning uh, in the economy. Let's say at the outset that the Prague Spring, after only several months, was crushed by by essentially the Soviet Union, but there were also four other Eastern European nations that took part in it. Uh, And in my opinion, at that moment, in my opinion, they also signed the death warrant for the system in the Soviet Union itself because what they were doing was preventing any discussion of a reform of that system. A few years later, decade and a half later, uh, Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and tried to deal with those issues, uh, and it was, it was really too late uh, by that time. So why is it important today? Well, first of all, uh, at a time when global capitalism is demonstrating its uh, inadequacies and uh, weaknesses, uh, to say the least, with soaring inequality uh, and many other problems of the global system. The question arises about what what is a feasible and acceptable uh, form of uh, an alternative to uh, that global capitalist system. Uh, and the Czechoslovaks, had they been allowed to continue on the path that they had democratically determined, in my opinion, would have had a chance of finding such a system uh, and including what the 
British writer Alec Nove described a long time ago as the economics of a feasible socialism. The question is, what is what was a feasible socialism? Of course, the other lesson is that each nation has got to be allowed to find its own road uh, and free from uh, either uh, imperialist uh, interference and ironically in that same year 1968 was the turning point for the American uh, intervention aggression essentially uh, against Vietnam uh, because earlier that year there had been the Tet Offensive, which once and for all exposed the fact that America could never win that that war. Um, so, unfortunately, on the other side, we had a Soviet intervention to prevent uh, an, another nation under a communist leadership, as it turned out, finding its own road uh, to socialism. What's often forgotten is that the major part of this program was to address the problems that the Czech economy, the Czechoslovak economy, had run into uh, because it was an advanced economy and uh, it, it was not delivering in the way that uh, it should be to the working people of Czechoslovakia. There were many advances of a socialist system, health, education and so on, but in terms of uh, material production, there were problems. Australian communists who visited Czechoslovakia in the few years leading up to 1968 reported uh, experiences such as being in the factory and sensing that the workers were quite sullen and uh, you know, not happy, if you like. But uh, I think it's perhaps best illustrated what what was wrong with the centralised method of planning, which attempted to determine what goods would be produced and in what quantity by a centralised plan. The Czechoslovak workers allegedly had a joke, and that went like this. There's a nail factory that makes nails, and the plan says you must produce 100 tonnes of nails, let's say, or 100,000 tonnes of nails in one year. Uh, so what the workers do is have a meeting and they decide they will produce one great big nail weighing 100 tonnes or whatever it is, whatever it was. Uh, and the point of the story being uh, no central plan could tell you how many 6-inch nails, 2-inch nails, etc. You need some kind of a market system, which is not the same as capitalism, uh, but it, it, it's uh, a system in which there's got to be more freedom for the enterprises to work out themselves what they will produce, how they will produce it, uh, what's, what actually uh, is needed uh, by consumers out there. What innovation? A very famous uh, British journalist who wrote for The Guardian, Martin Walker, wrote a book about the Gorbachev era in which he pointed out at the start of the Gorbachev era, Khrushchev had said, we will build communism in 20 years. That was a completely utopian idea, as it turned out. And he said that we will surpass the US, and he listed a number of criteria, how many tonnes of steel, how many tonnes of coal, and so on. And Walker's point was that 20 years later, in a sense, the Soviet Union had surpassed America, 
in the production of those things. But in those 20 years, the whole American economy had transformed into uh, a digital economy. And his point was that uh, something like uh, an Apple, which arose against the big corporations like IBM, uh, which you know controlled the computer industry, Apple arises producing uh, something, a personal computer, and it arises because it's it's in a capitalist system it can. Uh, and his point was, well, the Soviet Union had not loosened up enough to allow people like that. That sort of innovation, again, it doesn't have to be a capitalist system, but it has to allow for innovation. And for people, as Gorbachev said in his time, people need to be rewarded according to innovation and what they contribute. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to you know, advance. There's no incentive, if you like, to advance. So this is a vexed... You know, we're talking about a very vexed problem here uh, between, uh, if you like, too much capitalism and not enough market. You know, that's a, that would be a way of uh, summing it up. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to Brian Ahrens reflecting on the Prague Spring, the uh, when uh, the Czechoslovakians uh, stood up for a change in their uh, situation and when the Russians decided to send tanks in and suppress what they saw as an uprising. This is 1968 and uh, 1968 was, of course, a year, year of uh, foment. Uh, in fact, if you want to know more about uh, what was happening in 1968, you might like to go to a, a, a meeting that's going on, a speech, a talk that's going to go on on Sunday at Trades Hall. Uh, the uh, 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 alternative, left alternative, uh, putting on an event there on Sunday uh, talking about students, workers and revolutionary change. But let's go on with... Uh, what uh, Brian Ahrens is saying. The action program recognised the need for democracy and uh, artistic and literary freedoms as a value in themselves. Uh, So it's not, in other words, it's not just economy-centred, but the uh, uh, academic and intellectual forces who provided the underpinning of the action program did recognise that without... Uh, freedom and democracy and the right to raise ideas, that itself was a material economic factor. I I think this was one of the very important things. Uh, The Action Program was 40 or 50 pages. There was a much longer document, which we actually published here, Australian Left Review published, called Civilisation at the Crossroads, by a group of uh, academics and intellectuals, uh, economists and others, headed by someone called Radovan Richter. And that was recognising that we'd lived in a very different era, uh, that the role of science and technology had become a much, uh, even more important force in the economy itself, and that that itself required freedom of discussion uh, and ideas. So there were two things happening. The the need to develop the economy and what that required uh, and the value of democracy and freedom uh, as, a, as a value in itself. Now it's important to remember here because the Soviet leadership in its justification for the invasion uh, said things like the leading role of the party was being uh, foregone. Now, uh, 
Dubček never, ever talked about a multi-party system, uh, and you could say that was a weakness. Uh, he probably had no option at the time, but I think quite genuinely he, th- he thought what was wrong was not having a one-party system, but that the party had lost the confidence of the masses, and as he rightly said, the party has to earn its right to govern. It has to earn the support of the masses. Um, but he, never once did he suggest that there should be another party, let alone uh, several or many. Uh, of course, it, one of the great ironies of history is that by the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, they actually destroyed the leading role of the Czechoslovak Communist Party. It, never again would it be seen to by the ordinary Czech workers and uh, wider sections of the population to have a leading role. So the Czechs were, if you like, to put it in a more general sense, grappling with the very complex interactions between the economic base of society and the wider political, cultural uh, and democratic structures of the society uh, and how all these things uh, interact together. Dubček and the other Czech leaders were reacting to this. I I, I mean, if if you go through the year, you can see that sometimes they think things are going too far, they themselves don't understand it. But to their credit, they're they're realising that the society can't just repress these things. They've got to be actually you know, allowed to be out in the open and the moody blues are hardly a threat to the system. I mean, the irony is, of course, the, the, the Soviets also had this uh, repressive attitude. They didn't, they didn't like rock and roll and they didn't like the appeal of rock and roll. There's a famous Beatles song, of course, back in the USSR, uh, which I think they only got to perform, you know, 50 years later in, in Moscow under, under Putin or Yeltsin, I forget which one. But uh, the Czech leaders, I think, had the sophistication to recognise this is not a threat to our system. I'll tell a story. Uh, the Eureka Youth League, which I was then on the National Committee of, uh, sent a delegate to a conference in Czechoslovakia during the Prague Spring, and he got into a discussion this with is some pre-invasion. Pre the invasion, yeah. he got into a discussion with some young uh, Czechs there, uh, and it turned on the Middle East. Of course, the year before, in 1967, had been the uh, Six Day War, uh, and these young people were totally on the side of Israel and against the Palestinians, the Arab countries. And he said, well, why? That's not our position. And they said, well, and their line was, because in 1967, the then Stalinist regime was on the side of the Palestinians against Israel. They then just took the opposite because they assumed that the censorship uh, meant that, well, it, things were the opposite of what they were being told. That's and is a, that illustrative, do you think, that story illustrative of a general feeling amongst young people in Czechoslovakia at the time? Yes, that they didn't trust the system because there was not freedom of discussion. They didn't necessarily trust what they read in the official media. And I think that's to me, is a very good demonstration of what was wrong with that system, that it was, would have been far better to have you know, ha- had debate uh, where people could put different ideas. Uh, and the other thing to remember is, just as in 
in France in May and uh, in the student revolt around the world, the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement in the West, in America in particular and of course here in Australia, young people were challenging, rejecting uh, the uh, values and ideas of the system and in many cases of their own elders, their own family. Uh, this was also happening. You also had an, a better educated... This was a generation that had benefited from the post-war developments and you know, the best elements of the socialist system, with higher education and so on. Uh, they weren't always right, of course, but the attempt to repress, you know, to have a... You must think this, this and this. Uh, these are the official ideas and you can't think otherwise actually leads people to, to the opposite. Oh, well, those ideas must, all of them, be wrong. You're on Solidarity with Annie, Breakfast with Annie, and we're uh, listening to Brian Ahrens, who's talking about the Prague Spring, which is when the Russians uh, went in and took over Prague as the Czechoslovakians were uh, uh, moving towards a change in their social order. And uh, 1968, it's an anniversary. Uh, it's interesting because uh, there's a Czechoslovakian uh, film festival coming up and uh, there's a film on uh, during that festival called Prefab Story, which is uh, this scathing and o- often very funny r- rubbishing of life under normalisation, which is 1969 to 1987, has had scant exposure abroad. The local authorities did their utmost to suppress it domestically for many years too. Now, this is obviously the aftermath of the uh, Prague Spring and the takeover. That festival is on in Melbourne 12th to the 26th of September and it's at Acme. But let's continue with uh, this uh, going back over an event which quite clearly resonates with uh, changing times now and uh, uh, what happened in Australia because of the Russian tanks that went into Czechoslovakia. Now, uh, the Soviet leadership, why did they do it? Uh, Well, I think they saw that this was a great threat to... If if Czechoslovakia went down a certain road and showed that a more democratic, freed up, uh, both economically, socially and politically, model of socialism... Culturally. Yes, uh, as Dubček so well summed it up, socialism with a human face. Of course, that very phrase was taken by the Soviet leaders as a sharp criticism of their own system. Wow. And, and they could, in a, way, in a way, you could understand why they would see that. But as I touched on earlier, this is one of the great ironies and indeed tragedies of history from a socialist viewpoint. In taking the decision to say, well, if we think socialism is threatened, we have the right to invade another country. Uh, in taking that decision, they in fact ensured the destruction of that socialist, that very socialist system that they upheld that to be the only true road. Yes, yeah. yes. That they saw that as the its only days true socialism. Its days and years were numbered. Its days and years were numbered. Uh, I touched earlier on the reforms that Professor Lieberman and other economists were advocating in the early 60s and. Around 1965-66, the majority of the Soviet leadership 
suddenly clamped down on that, refused to take the road that the economists were saying they should be taking. Uh, it's, there's pretty strong evidence that the then Soviet Prime Minister, Alexei Kosygin, who was uh, quite close to Brezhnev, he wanted to continue with the reforms, but Brezhnev and others defeated that. So it's important to remember, before Czechoslovakia even happened, these issues had been advocated in their own way within the Soviet Union and tragically rejected by the Soviet leadership. The Czechs were setting out on a similar path, this is the irony. By preventing that path, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet leadership rather, then prevented any further debate within their own country about these issues until it was too late. Uh, by the time Gorbachev was allowed to to become the first secretary and the leader, uh, that 20 years had been lost. Tellingly, uh, in the Gorbachev period, the Brezhnev period was referred to as the period of stagnation. And I think that's an important point about what happened between 1945 and 1965, around the world actually, but especially in the socialist countries which started uh, much further back than the advanced West in economic development, what happened was by 65, the best elements of the command economy, that is, you know, planning the development of a heavy, heavy industry, basically, steel, iron, coal, cotton, etc., they had achieved a lot of things in regard to that economic development. It now needed a much more complex economy in which you needed much more than ever mm. this kind of loosening, uh, the, the ability for people to innovate, decentralisation, releasing the powers of initiative, exactly, and it, it, certainly locally, but also, let's say, industry sector-wise. Mm. So, uh, I mean, for example, in the 1950s in the Soviet Union, things were so bad in the, in the Stalin period and just after Stalin died that cybernetics, which was the basis yeah. of computer science, was labelled a bourgeois science. So wow. the Soviet Union was backward in that respect. And, and uh, so if there had been, if Professor Lieberman and others had been listened to, then what they would have set out on a path similar to what the Czechs tried to take a few years later. Uh, and who knows where that might have uh, gone, but in, in my own opinion, if there was a chance to evolve those centralist, Stalinist, if you want to call it that, centralist command economy models of socialism into a workable, feasible model, uh, then uh, that was the that was the time. The Czech people, of course, um, did resist uh, big time. There were huge strikes in the factories. Uh, the the one of the reasons that the Soviets chose that particular date, August the 21st, to invade, was that the Czech Czechoslovak Communist Party was about to hold a special congress. Uh, that was due to be held, I think, in September. Uh, and that would have clearly shown the vast majority of the communists, let alone the wider society, supporting the direction that Dubček and his leadership had taken. Uh, that was very clear. It had massive support from the Communist Party. Uh, that Congress, in fact, was then held 
under the invasion in an aircraft factory. So, I mean, that shows, if you like, that, that this is where it was actually held in a factory. I think it was an aircraft factory, um, but it was certainly a factory. It was held underground and endorsed the leadership, rejected the invasion. Clandestinely, despite the invasion, this Congress was still held. After the invasion, within a week or two, I think, it was held, was convened, uh, people uh, it took part uh, under the noses of the Soviet intervention forces. The Czech people in the streets, of course, were surrounding the Soviet tanks saying, why are you here? The Soviet soldiers were saying that uh, they had been told that there, were, there was a Western, a Western imperialist uh, intervention. Uh, they were told it wasn't so. Uh, there, were, there, there are very credible stories that tens, maybe even hundreds of Soviet soldiers were shot because they, when they would realised what had happened, uh, they refused to take part. That's, a, that's another part of the story. This Congress, remember, is taking part while uh, uh, the Czechoslovak leadership, Dubček, uh, Kriegel and others, were hauled off to Moscow, uh, very badly treated, um, uh, psychologically stood over and forced to sign the protocol, so-called Moscow Protocols. Uh, that's another aspect. Uh, the Soviets alleged that there was a threat of um, Western intervention, uh, that there was a return to capitalism. Who did they haul off to Moscow? No cap, not one single capitalist, not one single fascist, not one single uh, Western interventionist or spy, the communist leadership of the country. Yeah. Uh, that, to me, demonstrates more conclusively than anything you know, what, uh, how they were behaving. There were 500,000 troops I remember as a young person at the time, so, you know, talking, should the Czechs have resisted? Should they have said, we will fight? Whatever, whatever the case, uh, for the Czechs to have resisted such military force would have led to a bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the mm -hmm. Czech leadership, actually, that showed the greatest, um, if you like, uh, moral uh, courage in saying, well, we... Now that the invasions happened, uh, they actually called on the Czech people to uh, not resist you know, violently, but to resist in other ways, and the Czech people did resist in other ways. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're listening to Brian Ahrens talking about the Prague Spring. It's an anniversary. It all happened in 1968 when the Russians decided to send tanks in to Czechoslovakia when uh, the people were uh, getting restless. Uh, but uh, the last piece that we've got here is actually more pertinent to Australia and the effects that uh, the stirrings that were happening in Czechoslovakia and their connections to the green bands that were placed. Where did they come from? Why did people think that workers should have an effect on their working environment and living environment? Viewed historically, the, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia was a huge tragedy for the socialist movement uh, and for the Marxist movement, if you want to put it that way. Uh, Yes, it greatly divided the communist movement, that's the first point, uh, in each country and internationally. Uh, it, it was huge divisions. 
Uh, it also, as I've already said several times, uh, stopped develop e an evolution within the Soviet bloc itself that might have found a road to a more feasible socialism with a modern economy. It's very instructive that by enforcing that system, what did they do? Well, first of all, it meant that you've now got a kind of uh, strange mix of almost, uh, well, what, oligarchic capitalism mixed up with, a, you know, a, a huge state power in Russia itself. Uh, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union rather than the evolution of it towards something more workable. And, of course, in China, the Chinese leadership under Deng Xiaoping, when they saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, immediately shifted to uh, you know, a total capitalist model, uh, if you like, a, a sort of capitalism that claims to be socialism, uh, but run by the Communist Party, which has created its own uh, strange... Uh, social model communist elite which uh, talks in the name of communism but actually itself is integrated you know that many of them are very wealthy uh, and uh, are, you know if you like integrated into that into that system I mean it remains to be seen how that will evolve you might prefer to have a China like that than a US with, with Donald Trump as president but nevertheless the point of the story is that had the, that evolution in Czechoslovakia been allowed then uh, uh, history might have turned out very differently but to come back to your question here and this was repeated around the world uh, many people left communist parties indeed some people who supported the party decision here nevertheless left the communist party because they saw that there was no as they saw it, there was no hope for the future anymore. To, to look at those who supported the Soviet uh, decision, uh, I think that they were too taken in by stories of uh, the dangers of a return to capitalism, uh, why they thought that ne that, that itself justified uh, an invasion of that kind is hard for me to work out. But I will say this, I can understand people being loyal to the Soviet Union, the communist movement uh, in, in part, some would say in large part, was based on uh, the, the tremendous uh, attractive appeal, a romantic appeal of the Russian Revolution, uh, and people too readily uh, came to believe that whatever the Soviet Union did, they knew what they were doing and they were right. Uh, there was a loyalty, if you like, to mm. the Soviet Union. And a loyalty. Blind, yes, uh, I was. That's right. And I was about to say, I think, a loyalty to the idea of the Soviet Union and therefore to the Soviet leadership, which the Soviet leadership did not deserve that loyalty. The great tragedy of what happened was that there were many good comrades on all sides, and I would say this: that uh, in in the unions, as in many other movements, you have comrades who are, you know, if you like, can be more conservative and people who are more uh, uh, more radical in their thinking. The Green Bands, uh, interestingly enough, came, I, I think, very much was based on the fact that the environment at the same time, parallel with the CPA supporting the Prague Spring and condemning the Soviet invasion, was also looking at the new movements and particularly centrally 
the issues of the environment and ecology and just how important these issues were and their relationship to the political economy of capitalism. You know, the, the, the ecological destruction was very much tied up with the dynamics of uh, corporate capitalism as we saw it. Uh, and the green bands, in a way, came out of the fact that environmental issues were being discussed in the forums of the party, parallel to, but not necessarily causally connected to, and those the Prague are Spring. Those filled with working people. Those for filled with apparatchiks. Exactly. Uh, and I, I like to think. I mean, uh, I, I don't think that there's a one-to-one -one connection necessarily. And I know that, for example, uh, Tom McDonald, whom I think very highly of, in his uh, uh, both editions of his and his wife Audrey's memoirs uh, has said that uh, he was slow to realise how important the Green Bands movement was as a people's movement. He, he, uh, uh, he came to see that his and others' initial conservatism about the Green Bands movement was wrong. So I, I think very highly of someone like Tom who you know can look back on that period and say, well, look, I, I was wrong about that issue. And of course, later, the BWIU uh, supported uh, similar uh, green bands and other such such. I guess what I'm trying to explore here is that um, philosophically, there seems to be some sort of um, continuity between uh, the Czechoslovak. Uh, the action program and the things that were being done in practical terms around the environment uh, here in Australia, which were, you know, they were groundbreaking at the time. Mm. Um, the notion of green of workers taking control over what sort of buildings should be torn out, torn down, and uh, and, and and then erected is a pretty groundbreaking yeah. perspective on unionism. That, and, um, that's a so very I'm wondering whether there is a continuity there. Yes, no. Uh, well, uh, let's say certainly a connection. No, you, you're quite right, and that, that does bring out an important point. The Green Bands were not just about environment. They were also, in Jack Mundy's inimitable words, about the responsibility of workers to think about the product of their work, the consequences of their work. And that, of course, you're, you're dead right, comes from a notion of workers' control and, and uh, the right of workers to have a say. But I think Jack summed it up well, and, and, that workers, they not only needed to have a paid job, but they needed to think about the work they were doing and the social consequences. In the case of... Uh, buildings in Sydney were well, not just buildings, sorry, parks as well, mm. uh, that uh, workers ought to, th if there's a proposal to demolish a building, uh, say a, a heritage building and build a massive tower, well the workers who are involved in taking down the initial building, uh, demolishing it and building a new one should think about, well, should we actually support that? Mm. And of course he evolved a very a very good principle which still today should be taken as a model and that was if a local community approached the Builders Labourers Federation and said we don't want you to destroy Kelly's Bush, that was the very first Green Bands, or uh, take down the Pitt Street Congregational Church uh, or build a sports stadium on a massive part of Centennial Park, 
the local community doesn't want that. They could approach the union. The union would ensure that the local community, that was actually the views of the local community, but then it would put to its own members, well, we want you to democratically vote. Yes. So the union leadership didn't take the decisions bureaucratically and unilaterally. It put it to its own rank-and-file members. And that was one reason why the rank-and-file members of Builders Labor so strongly supported the Monday leadership, because they were consulted uh, about these, these issues. The initial more conservative reaction in unions was, of course, well, why should we be bothered with these middle-class women in Hunters Hill, you know, a very uh, wealthy suburb of Sydney, or why should we worry about Centennial Park, you know, opposite which lived our, the great author, Patrick White. Uh, and, of course, what Jack Mundy was doing was building uh, alliances, uh, which is what Marxists have always talked about, uh, between different sections of the community, between workers as workers and uh, community members, some of whom were well off indeed and very middle class. So what is the lesson for today? Well, we're still finding our own way towards a socialism that, A, would be attractive to people mm. in the here and now of Australia and, B, would be workable and feasible. And the final lesson is, I think, and the CPA very much drew this lesson, Every country, every party in every country has to find its own road forward. Uh, there can, you can't follow foreign models and uh, you certainly should resist any attempt to impose foreign models. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, this is a perfect segue. We've got in the studio uh, Natasha and Ronaldo, who are part of a project coming out of Moreland, Suitcase of Dreams. But I'm not going to describe it. Natasha, do you want to tell us what's going on there? Certainly. Good morning. Um, We're part of a project um, which has been funded by the City of Moreland. And uh, initially our um, inception of the project was to um, honour and pay homage to the immigrants that played a big part of the City of Moreland. Um, we're um, from, we're uh, children of immigrants, so our parents arrived in the 50s and um, we've, we grew up in the city of Moreland, so we wanted to uh, pay homage to um, a big part of um, uh, the community that made Moreland that it is today. Um, and with that, um, we decided that we'd... Um, uh, it, um, participate in a, a worldwide global project called Inside Out um, and with that um, we will be taking portraits of different um, people around the city of Moreland and uh, plastering their pictures AO size on a uh, public space in Brunswick. Oh fantastic. Is this, uh, uh, this the Inside Project, is this part of uh uh, the French fellow who goes around and does murals like this in community Correct. spaces? Correct. So we're participants of, um, uh, uh, we're a group action, so to speak, of um, the Inside Out project of JR, correct? Yeah. Yes. yes, that's right, because there's a, a fascinating film that was made recently Absolutely. about it. Yeah. And uh, people might have already seen uh, some of the... Uh, 
uh, art that's on the side of buildings that like the the girl that's flying yes and uh, other other space other uh, absolutely um, effective uh, piece of art public art a great way of uh, describing uh, people in their spaces and also bringing people uh, art to the people and make it accessible and um, having that opportunity for uh, people to see their faces on a wall and understanding the importance of the role they've played in making a community that it is today yeah and what's your part in this Ronaldo um I'm the photographer oh right yeah great so I'll be documenting all the participants and um, so, yeah, I guess it's always been uh, such an, um, a close close to our heart, really, because we've grown up and seen these immigrants and their starting age, and um, such as our parents and so forth, and relatives who we see are becoming less mobile, let's say. And um, I guess the aim of the project as well is not so much to have people come to us to have their portraits taken, but we're also be willing to go out to have to document them. I, seeing that film about uh, the artist and uh, the uh, older filmmaker going around the French provincial cities and uh, getting them to get locals to put their pictures up on the walls, the effect that that had on the locals seeing themselves there was so compelling. Uh, I can. Uh, have you had any responses from uh, your elders about coming forward to get their photographs taken? Do they understand what what's being asked of them? Um, I believe so. Um, especially with our immediate family of elders, um, I've always been documenting them. I think it was about twenty years ago I started a project documenting. Um, my elders and their cultural traditions and how they hold on to their um, their own suitcase of dreams. Yeah, it's a great know. title. And um, and so I guess they're quite used to that now because um, I've spent a lot of time doing that with them. So in regards to our immediate um, elders, yeah. They're yeah, because it's about valuing, it. isn't it? It's about valuing. Well, I guess it's about um, taking notice and holding on to those believing that those traditions have value yeah. in a contemporary society. That's and, exactly right. Um, and making and moving forward with them as a preservation, really. I remember talking mm. to Sudanese uh, refugee people who had uh, become part of the Australian community. Uh, uh, one of them, I remember a person saying, when, when do we get to be Australians? Why, when are we always going to be the person who's always just come in last? And when are we allowed to, you know, because every, t- every time someone speaks to them, oh, where do you come from? What do you do? Da, da, da. You know, not a normal Australian conversation about being part of the place. Um, in a sense, is that the journey that's being described here, that, you know, we're part of this place? I mean, you can't be more part of the place than having your picture up on the wall. Absolutely. Um, you know, they, they've paid it played a, a massive contribution to um, the, the area of s- the city of Moreland. And um, with that, I think um, letting, in the process of um, taking their portraits and um, them telling their story as they take their portraits. So are you making oral history as well? Well, not not particularly oral history. This is more a photographic um, sort of um, uh, exhibition. But in, in terms of um, speaking to them and allowing them to express their stories, um, it sort of does become oral in a way because they tell their stories and then we take their photos. 
scenes and 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 um, their portrait, um, their face will tell the story on the wall once it's exhibited. Mm. Uh, you're looking for people, aren't you, to uh, be part That's of this correct. project? That's correct. Yeah, we are, and um, we've also we've got a few sessions touched. Yeah, yeah, we've got our first details. session at the Coburg Library this coming Monday, the third of September, and that will commence at ten thirty, and we'll be there for a few hours. Are you hoping for walk-ins? A bit of both, yeah. We're ha- we're happy to, um, t- uh, you know, walk around the Coburg area, around that little hub, and speak to people and let them know about the project and to make it available. And um, so, yeah, our first session is uh, we've had one session actually, which was last week um, at um, the location where the. Uh, uh, portraits will be um, exhibited and that's in Brunswick on Sydney Road at a cafe um, and this will be our second session and that will be at 10.30 on Monday at the Coburg Library. Oh, fantastic. Yes. So uh, this uh, project, um, usually with all projects, there's the tip of the iceberg, what everybody sees. How long has it, been, has it taken you to get this off the ground? Um, from inception, inception was about p- possibly... 12 months ago when we were speaking about it and we're um, in the middle of it. So we're, we're proposing that the exhibition will be um, displayed by February or March next year. So. Okay. And what about the public um, paste-ups, that sort of thing? Where, where are you going to put them? Have you thought about the locations? We have a location, and that's on Sydney Road in Brunswick, um, just uh, uh, on a wall of Cafe Sorrento, which is near the um, train depot uh, and the tram, tram depot, depot. Sorry, yeah. um, on Sydney Road. So that's our location, um, and with that, um, once we have all our portraits, we will be having a launch also for for all the people, so they'll be invited to see their photos plastered up on the wall. What does it mean for you? Because you're second generation. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so your people came from which part of Italy? Uh, southern Italy. Which uh, one? From Calabria yeah, and yeah. also from Potenza, Basilicata. Um, so um, we uh, grew up in Brunswick. Yeah. Our parents had a material shop on Sydney Road for 25 years. So um, we uh, lived a, our life in Brunswick and we've seen it change through the ages and um, important for us and a really um, amazing project for us to embrace who we are and where we came from also. So, And um, p- paying homage to all the people and all the um, immigrants that made Brunswick, Coburg, Pascavale, City of Moreland, what it is today. Now, the, the uh, obviously the uh, Moreland Council is uh, seeing this as uh, this is a project that's important to them. As a local council, uh, they're standing up and making sure that uh, they reflect their real community. That That's correct. Absolutely. Diversity. I mean, that's, you know, one of uh, City of Moreland's um, most used words. And I think that's pretty amazing that they can embrace that. And they saw this project as a perfect opportunity um, for them to showcase how important diversity is in the community. So do you want to give people the uh, uh, information about how, if they want to get in contact with you, that they, how they can do that? Certainly. So um, uh, my, my telephone number... I'm happy to um, for people to contact me is zero four one seven five seven three one three four or alternatively uh, via email it's Natasha 
colangelo at c-o-l-a-n-g-e-l-o 11 at gmail.com and we also have a facebook page and it's called suitcase of dreams fantastic thanks for coming in and talking to us about this thank you it's a a great local project a week solidarity bricky team listener when last week we were left standing beside that stinking foul fossils tailing cesspool watching the defeated former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers and former minister for concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer sink into the detritus along with negative fossils energy policy 183 and tax cuts for the filthy rich. Constable Duffer's bald pate last seen sinking into the mire, being struck head heavily by his own baton, so thankfully there was no chance of any damage. All usurped by Constable Duffer's predecessor as Minister for Concentration Camps, etc. But the body wouldn't lie down. Two days later, the bald pate burst to the surface, covered in this dripping filth, this zombie figure lurching toward the shore as it re-emerged back where it had all begun, as Minister for Keeping Us Secure still determining who it is safe to let in and who it is unsafe to let in, starting more wild celebrations and dancing in the streets of Nauru and Manus by those no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, as they sought a list of Pete's associates. And by week's end, every no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat person had applied to be an au pair. With the right connections, we're a walk-up start, they explained. Quite possibly, Pete confused his rhyming slang, thinking au pairs meant home affairs, or quite possibly thought they were the same thing. But on balance, these are tax. And I hope no one thinks all these leaks indicate some Kerry business class party or Hayseed and Sheepshit party members are a, a bit upset about Pete's performance last week. As an aside, I suspect he's the first MP to lose two leadership ballots in the same week, indicating his huge popularity over and above his brilliant grasp of grade one arithmetic. But on balance, these attacks have no substance. On one side, we have the big supremo of the AFL, a member of a filthy, rich, South Troublewazi, Grazier dynasty, whose uncle was a caring business class party minister, whose name, if I recall correctly, was associated with the background machinations to the 1990s maritime dispute. Big supremo of lobbying for a woman to be released from detention so she could work for a member of the extended, filthy, rich, Grazier family, which makes huge donations to the caring business class party and supported in lobbying by an AFL staff member whose previous job was working for the caring business class party and a department recommending she not be released because she would breach her visa conditions. Okay, that's one side. On the other side, Pete says all that had absolutely nothing to do with his decision which was based simply on compassion and generosity. So clearly, the balance comes down heavily on Pete's side. Pete wins easily. Not guilty, Your Honour. And ditto the other case. There's plenty more to come, we suspect. The other case had nothing to do with, nothing to do with, nothing at all to do with the party involved being a mate of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's force. Uh, Sorry, police force. 
And as far as the week that was is concerned, that's the end of the matter, because Constable Duffer's compassion and generosity are legend. Well, he was a copper. The long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden work in an iron black armband lot have been carrying on all week that new big supremo scuttled their more lash son, named after his compassionate and generous term as Minister for Concentration Camps, etc., was downgrading environmental concerns to even lower than they have been. When, if they'd only approached the matter with an open mind, they'd have to admit their prejudices and concede that in three days scuttled them eradicated climate change altogether. Announcing he was concerned with lowering energy prices, Scuttle then declared he was not concerned about climate change because I want to concentrate on what is happening now. Indicating, Scuttle then was aware, climate change is not happening now. Otherwise he wouldn't have said it. So now we can say there's no such thing as climate change. All these scientists around the world seeking solutions and even acknowledgement of the problem for years and scuttle themselves them in three days. And to prove it yesterday, the government gave one million to Brown Coal Innovation True Blue Aussie, whoever they are, to investigate a new coal-fired power plant in the Latrobe Valley, but as Resources Minister Matt Cole Caravan assured us, it would be a low-emission coal. Although, given climate change has been resolved, it doesn't really matter now, emit as much as they like. Low-emission brown coal. Brown coal has unique properties that make it ideal for upgrading to higher value products, Matt said, direct quote. Well, until Scuttle them eradicated climate change, that was one of those unique properties back in that long, long time ago before last Monday. And of course, the brown coal fossils in that tailing cesspool would have contributed to resurrecting the Constable Duffer zombie. Although... No, no, that's not a good example, because he, he did say higher value products. <clears throat> and the new energy minister, Angus Tailings, said he just loves renewable energy, but first he must lower electricity prices, and we can't afford renewables because they'll force coal out of the equation, and we all know the sensible centre solution is a mix of energy sources. Uh, how much lower can you get prices, Angus? Ideally... I'd like to reduce them to the levels they were at in the 90s. What, before the industry was privatised? Yes, yes, back then when it was so inefficient. And the new Environment Minister, Melissa Price out Renewables, does acknowledge climate change. Well, when climate change existed, because she refers to it as so-called climate change. A perfect fit for Environment Minister. So what are those long-haired commie greenie lots carrying on about? On policy sinking into the tailing cesspool without trace, the oops, that backfired badly award of the week to former minister for handing all that lovely, lovely workers' superannuation trillions to the big banks and the big financial institutions, Kelly owed a wire workers so evil, ensuring the matter was in the terms of reference of the Hermes Grace's Majesty's Banking Royal Commission to make sure it nailed evil unions and workers, guaranteeing they were removed from having anything to do with their own money, replaced by truly independent, responsible bankers and corporate directors. But sadly, oops, 
that backfired badly as the Royal Commission nailed the truly independent responsibles for ripping off workers big time, just possibly explaining why the workers controlling their own money outperform the responsible bankers and forcing the government to cast yet another essential policy into that, uh, that fossil cesspool to sink without trace. Kelly, your well-earned, oops, that backfired badly award is on its way. But poor Kelly's failed campaign to transfer those lovely, lovely funds to where they belong, certainly not with workers at evil unions, was supported by that highly responsible Big Four international financial behemoth, KP on the customer's MG, wealth chief, that's what he's called, who attacked the Royal Commission for its imbalance. There was a general expectation it would be a rough couple of weeks for the industry as a whole, he complained. What surprised me was the significant amount of time dedicated to retail funds versus quite a cursory amount of time on industry funds. I wasn't expecting that imbalance. Oh, what a pity. Does this, put, does this mean KPMP on the customers, etc. won't get its, its hands on all that? Lovely, lovely. Well, directly. Oh, and the great defender of the banks and financial institutions against the workers running their own affairs, the wealth chief at KP on? None other than former AWU secretary Paul Howes, that for selling out. And he's obviously on the workers' side. And note, his predecessor as union secretary, now Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, has hit the front in the preferred Supremo poll at... 30-something percent, showing what high regard we hold them all in in their race to the bottom. Still on our highly responsible banking industry, in the right hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing department, the Lord Rupert of Wapping, um, Lord Rupert of Wapping displayed his genuine concern for those struggling to keep a roof over their heads Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping sin P1 screaming headline. It's a stick-up! accompanied by the Worst Pack Bank logo. Shameless Worst Pack slugs homeowners. And on and on, this hard-hitting, unemotive news story went. Then, turn a couple of pages, and his giant mind economic expert, Terry Pukan, headline, they had no choice. This was the rate rise we had to have, Terry informed us expertly. Right. So... Given the unemotive, the truth and nothing but the truth accuracy of Lord Rupert's news reports, Terry is telling us, for the good of the banks and the economy, and therefore for the good of all of us, those with mortgages simply had to have a shameless bank sticking it up them and slugging them. So finally, well, shameless banks by the time it settles down, because, and this is a bit confusing given we simple folk would think if a rival ups its prices, that'd be good because you've got lower prices, but no. These economic experts who know all about these things said that after worse pack jacked up its prices, the other banks would have no choice but to follow suit. Ah. But doesn't it show how difficult it is for we non-practitioners to comprehend the intricacies of the laissez-faire greatest little economic order of them all? Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. <laughs> and uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and on the line we've got Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? I'm pretty good, especially after listening to Kevin. I mean, it's a big ask for you to put on me that <laughs> somehow or other I have to follow on from Kevin. <laughs> that was just so good to listen to. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you had yeah. something you wanted to talk about in particular, about uh, um, inequality. Yes. Um, I reckon uh, the whole issue of inequality is now rising to the fore and, uh, and also what to do about it. And, of course, what to do about it is a very different problem for the institutions that have created it than it is for those who are trying to reverse it, like in the Change the Rules campaign being developed by Australia's unions. But before we get into that a little bit further, can I just sort of uh, ask, put in a request, maybe if, if Kevin could take a closer look at what Michaelia Cash has been saying in the last week or so... Yeah. After you know the former minister for workplace relations, mm. and now in this new ministry under this uh, these, this the buffoons government, Michaela Cash, of course, has been saying for weeks that she's not going to ask uh, answer any more questions in the public about what's been going on with her officers' participation and encouragement and perhaps organisation of the police raids on the Australian Workers Union. Um, because it's being uh, it's the subject of a police investigation. Well, this week she's been saying that she's not answering questions to the police investigation because everything she has said is in the public domain. Oh, she's so clever. Uh, that is so clever. Um, it has its limits, though, and I would be fascinated to hear Kevin uh, tear that apart, mm. dare I say. I think the other thing before we get on to inequality is that uh, I'd like to join with you in paying uh, our due respects to Laurie Carmichael, who died a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago today, and who, who whose funeral was on last week. Laurie Carmichael was one of the great union leaders of the 20th century here in Australia, and he had an international reputation, including through the International Metal Workers Federation, but also through his work as a peace uh, solidarity uh, activist. Uh, Laurie was one of the most remarkable and multifaceted, and, uh, you know, we can't do it justice in just a minute or so. I think the way I would sum it up is that uh, Laurie believed in a complete unionism. And just to sort of illustrate a couple of aspects of that, he was a champion of worker and union education and also of the role of unions in developing the arts. And there were some very other great leaders who were doing that roughly over the same period as he was, as he was uh, a champion of that. Uh, and that took many forms, but it included, for example, uh, uh, formal education programs delivered by the by his union, the AEU, and then the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, in which he was both a participant but also a, uh, a tutor and a, a lecturer from time to time. But also in things like, uh, in the early 70s, the AMW brought the great uh, British uh, folk duo, Ewan McColl and Peggy Seeger, on a national tour of Australia. Oh, isn't that interesting? And yeah, and they, and they performed, and they, there was actually a vinyl recording of their performance, I think, at the Tom Mann Theatre. And there was a, a big connection between Tom Mann, who was a major figure, incidentally, in the formation of the Victorian Socialist Party in the early part of the last century, 
and Tom Mann, because Tom Mann was Tom Mann was an, uh, a metal worker, and uh, and he came to Australia for ten or fifteen years, and it was a big influence on Laurie because of his all round approach, a complete new approach to unionism. The sec- the second thing, very quickly, is that Laurie was a very serious student of uh, the evolution of technology. And so, just to be brief about it, he was one of the first champions of, use, of unions using uh, computers themselves, going, started talking about that in the late 60s, and uh, was alert to the prospects of digitalisation, although it was all analogous, of course, uh, during most of his time. In fact, at one point in one National Council meeting of the AMWU, he said that people ought to pay attention to the idea that one day they would not have to carry money in their wallets <laughs> in order to know about their daily life. He was and an he ideas was man. By everyone else in the room. Yeah, he was an ideas man. Tell me, uh, I know that uh, he was uh, credited with uh, being quite involved in the Accord. And, uh, of course, the Accord gets bad press these days because it's analysed as softening up the working class for the neoliberal takeover. But it seems to me, looking at the evidence, that he must have been thinking that there were other things that were going to come out of the Accord that was going to be a very positive for for working class people. So they're talking about things like... Um, Medicare and uh, and things of that nature. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I, well, I, I, I've always said that the Accord was a different kind of a scam, that people hadn't realised that uh, you can't make a deal with the devil. Is that where, is that uh, what, where, where was he coming from? Well, uh, I was going to say a little bit about his, um, his uh, dominant leadership role in the defeat of the penal powers in the 1960s, but perhaps we can leave that for another time. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important strategy that he involved himself in. Laurie's approach to the Accord, well, once again, we won't do it justice. In in very brief, it goes like this. Uh, At the time of the Whitlam government, there were successful wage campaigns that led to significant gains in the industrial wage, that is, the take-home pay of workers. Uh, That uh, politically, in a parliamentary sense, created problems for for the Whitlam government. Then, after the Whitlam government was removed through the coup, uh, Laurie insisted that the newly formed National Research Centre... at the AMW, looking to what was happening to workers' living standards in relationship to the industrial wage. The impact of that, that research revealed that although the industrial wage had been increasing, living standards for some parts of the working class were declining because of the effects of taxation and social uh, government social spending on education, health and transport. So he started from within the AMWU a critique, if you like, of whether the industrial wage was enough to deliver an improvement in living standards. Then the upshot of that was uh, the publication of a thing called Australia Ripped Off, which was in cartoon and text form 
an introduction to through union education and all sorts of other things, an introduction to the concept of the social wage. And the, what flowed from that was that he led a discussion that said, is the social wage, that is, to put it crudely, taxation policy and government spending policy, is that union business? What a clever person. He was brainy. Yes. yes. He, 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 and he did this on the basis of very serious uh, uh, kitchen table reading and then lots of discussion, uh, especially Friday afternoons at the end of the working week with his uh, comrades uh, in the various union offices. So from there, if the answer to that question is that, yes, it is union business, the next question is, well, in what sense? Is it just union business in the sense that the unions make sure that friendlies get elected in the Labor Party who will do the right thing by the workers? Or is it union business in the sense that unions have to find a way to be at the table in, for, in influencing and forming the government's views on taxation policy and spending? Now, if you go down that road, then you have to set up an arrangement where unions can regularly negotiate with the government about the social wage, about living standards as a whole and the relationship between the two. Now, I'm not going to suggest that what came out over the next 15 years flowing from that was perfect. That's another discussion. But these, this was his... This is what he was driving, and he wasn't the only one, but he was certainly a major figure in creating this debate. Now, the upshot of that was to lead to, uh, in 1983, when, uh, which was uh, the last year of the, <coughs> of the uh, Fraser government, in 82-83, there was an economic recession, and the union movement did not pursue pay increases in those years. It gave up. And he wasn't happy with that, but he said that, well, there's going to be a Labor government soon, and therefore, if we think we should want to have a say in what both the industrial wage and the social wage should be all about, we have to negotiate with them. And that concept led to the Accord document, which was an agreement between the Labor Party and the union movement. Now... Then, after Hawke was elected, the, the, Hawke convened a tripartite conference. Yeah, I of remember. Employers, yeah. unions, and government reps. Yes, he did. And that produced an economic statement that the Hawke government, therefore, it had employer uh, fingerprints all over it, as well as union influence and so on. Now, that was for Laurie a natural consequence of the process of unions saying, yes, the social and industrial wage are our business, and yes, we had to get face-to-face with governments to put our views and to argue our case, rather than just leaving it to elected politicians to go their own way. So that was sort of his approach to it. Now, there are a lot of things that flow from that, and uh, some of it justifiably controversial, and some of it very misrepresented by those who are, if you like, doctrinaire, uh, or certainly the expression I'd use, doctrinaire opponents of the accord. What Laurie was trying to challenge 
putting aside how successful or not, was the dominance of Labourism. That is, and one of the key planks of Labourism in our union movement is the way in which unions should approach politics and the role of the parliament is to basically fund the election of union-friendly people into uh, into safe and marginal seats, doesn't matter where, and try and get them elected so that they will then do the right thing in the caucuses of the party and in the parliament. Well, we all know the limits of that approach. <laughs> yes, well, that's a very interesting analysis. Thanks very much. I'll just tell the listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and, and we're having a yarn with uh, Donald Sutherland. Uh, let's move on to... Uh, uh, the uh, talk uh, you wanted to talk about inequality and the Productivity Commission having a report about inequality, uh, which to me is almost like an oxymoron. You know the way the uh, federal LMP government is inserting uh, everything under the Productivity Commission when it shouldn't be there. Yeah, that is indeed a uh, a very good way of describing it. It is almost an oxymoron. We have to put the what. The, what the Productivity Commission has uh, come out with in the last few days into this context. We have a new ministry and a new minister. Their biggest problem uh, in regard to inequality it is, is that it is now an electoral problem. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. And it's never Otherwise, it's never a problem to them. In the, it, what came out of all those by-elections was that uh, wage repression and inequality is now an election issue. And therefore, they have to, in some way, manage uh, and minimise what they have been doing for the last 30 years if they are to have any slight chance of being re-elected. And that's, in a sense, the short straw that the new minister has got and has inherited from, really, decades of uh, bipartisan policies that have created the architecture for the repression of wages and other aspects of neoliberal capitalism in Australia. Now, one of the chief architects, uh, sorry, one of the chief elements in the architecture of wages repression and inequality is the Productivity Commission. And so what is the, the... The Productivity Commission comes out this week with a report on what is the true status of inequality. And what it's saying, on the one hand, got one newspaper like The Guardian saying that the report basically confirms uh, that there is rampant inequality and it's a serious problem. And then another one, perhaps more accurately in my view, the Financial Review is reporting that the Productivity Commission has constructed an argument that inequality is not a really serious problem. Yeah, that's exactly it right. It is a bit of a problem at the uh, at the lowest incomes. That's right, and, and it's the individual's fault. They should get a better job. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. And so here we have, it's somewhat hypocritical really, here we have one of the institutions that have created... Uh, well, they have. They've literally created it. I mean, the Productivity Commission is a policy tool of the LNP federal government. Uh, 
it, it is a significant policy uh, policy tool for it's an institution that does research to produce trickle down economics as the dominant form of economics or neoliberal economics, whatever label you want to give it, as the way of uh, forming policy. Yeah. There are others, of course. The Fair Work Commission in itself has in, has been forced to and has happily accepted the neoliberal... Well, you see, we, we, when, when the Productivity Commission was uh, put in charge of looking at industrial relations, then you knew that the game was on. Well, they themselves say that it's not normal for them to do research and make reports on something like inequality. The fact that they have usually impelled on request from the minister, the fact that they have means that what they're getting worried about is that people are moving from whinging about the repression of wages and other incomes, especially New Start, they're moving to effective action and unrest about it. And so the role of these reports is to try and dampen and weaken the rising unrest, especially as that unrest gets more, it moves from whinging to becoming more articulate, more informed, more combative, both not just uh, in meetings and in confrontations with politicians, but also combative intellectually. Yeah. Well, you know, Don, you know, Don, the fact that the minister has uh, got the Productivity Commission to do a report on this uh, just proves the, this government's full of people who can't think clearly. I mean, they're, they're focused on an outcome, but they're not, uh, uh, they, they are intellectual pygmies. Let's move on to the Turnbull um, O'Dwyer uh, thing you wanted to talk about because. Uh, Turnbull leaving is quite significant on uh, in terms of who's in power, uh, who the masters of the servants are, and Kelly O'Dwyer's ferocious uh, attack on um, worker representation on superannuation is a fascinating, uh, uh, and her uh, the fact that she's been promoted to the minister for industrial relations. She's been an active supporter of, well, she's been an active opponent of having any sort of royal commission into banking behaviour. She has form there. She uh, doesn't care uh, and has shown no commitment at all to uh, uh, two aspects of superannuation that I uh, I think are worth commenting on. Um, Firstly, she's been a champion of uh, putting uh, private sector uh, industries, uh, sorry, private sector superannuation fund uh, executives onto the boards of the industry super funds, and yet what the Royal Commission has done is discover that, in fact, uh, with one minor exception, the industry super funds are squeaky clean, but the private sector executives have been rorting uh, the superannuation system. Surprise, uh, surprise. <laughs> and she is a champion of that. The other aspect of it, she's done nothing about the gender gap. So we have Equal Pay Day uh, yesterday, which we should pay due recognition to inadequately, but at least by saying that one of the aspects of um, pay outcomes, apart from the uh, officially reported, but probably under underestimating, 
14.6% gap in the in 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 pay uh, for women uh, is that there is this massive difference uh, uh, in the outcomes of superannuation for women relative to men, and it's bad for women relative to men. She, she so she has no has revealed no serious commitment about uh, doing anything about that. The so she has fought, and she has obviously been a part of a government that has supported cuts to penalty rates and all of those things. In other words, but she has now this problem. She's in charge of what to do about wages repression. And if they want to win an election, they have to be. They, they, one of the things they have to do is to show that they're trying to do something to. Um, uh, unpick all of the damage that, that they've been inflicting for, uh, well, they've continued the infliction of damage that was created by others before them, uh, Howard, and then to a certain extent Gillard, um, and uh, she has to unpick all of that. Now, the only way she can do that uh, is, is, is by intervening, and in, <laughs> I can't see any other alternative but to maybe pick up some aspects of the minimalist, the least effective elements of the ALP's program. And I think that's what the employer organisations are pushing for, that they could tolerate, provided the fundamentals of repression stay in place, they could tolerate some minor adjustments. God, they're, they're unbelievable, aren't they? They're unbelievable. Well, they're such greedy well, pigs. Well, it's not just greed. It's also very rational from their point of view. Uh, the employers obviously are going to hedge their bets. The employer organisation... No, yeah, because they, they're not sure who they, who they have to be nice to. I think they know that they're going to, they're going to have to deal with the Labor government. And so when you hear, uh, I mean, I think it's unavoidable for an alternative government to have to talk with employers, employer organisations. Well, of course. What we need to do is to understand what's going on in those discussions. And what's going on is the beginnings. It's a repeat almost, but we're at the very early stages of the employers engaging with a prospective Labor government and possibly with the Greens. I don't know about that for sure at the moment. But engaging with them to ensure that, if elected, the Labor government will adopt a minimal program and not the really serious uh, uh, demands of the Change the Rules campaign around uh, multi-employer bargaining through awards or industry uh, agreements uh, and especially the right to strike. Tell me, Those, Don, Don, if you were a betting man, when do you think the next federal election will happen? Uh, well, I'm not a betting person. Uh, I didn't uh, think you were. That's why I yeah, put it that way. <laughs> well, I had the odd flutter, but, uh, yes, yes, yes. It's very, it, it's, it's very rare. Um, but, look, honestly, I, it's possible October, but I think more likely that... Uh, it will go through to around May next year. That's my hunch. Yeah, yeah. I think they'll draw all, it out. Yeah. All, all, you see, all of this has implications for the Change the Rules campaign. 
and its strategy. And it's, I mean, today is the, the big know, the door knock. Several national door knocks. Yes. And uh, there, you know, there are particularly targeted uh, uh, places. And uh, I think I think that the sec- the other thing that feeds into that, and I see that last a week or so ago, you had Humphrey McQueen talking about economic crisis. Yes, that's In right. A couple of weeks, we had the anniversary of the collapse of the uh, socially destructive investment bank Lehman Brothers in yeah, the United States, which right. is sort of widely regarded as the trigger for. The you last. have to hurry up. We've only got three minutes. Hurry it up. Yeah. Now that's going to happen again. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not, not if. It's when. Yeah, and we don't know what the trigger will be. There's all sorts of possibilities. Uh, and that's going to, we need to work out in the Change the Rules campaign how we're going to deal with that. Because it may occur before the election of a Labor government, it might occur after. Mm. And that will generate pressure for minimal change, concessions. Well, you know, this business about the environment and this idea that we can frack and coal our way into the next uh, millennium is actually an extreme worry. So inequality is one thing, but the having air to breathe and water to drink is, you know, it's it's a, it's a matter of which uh, string's going to run out first in some respects. But anyway, we have to finish it there. And the important thing there is that the two crises, the environmental crisis and the next economic crisis, are not parallel, they're intertwined. Intertwined, I know. Anyway, on that cheery note, we have to go. All the very best to everybody. Yes, thanks, mate. See you in Melbourne next week for the memorial service for Laurie Carmichael, uh, which is on... uh, September the 6th, 11 to 12.30 at the ANMF in Elizabeth Street. Yes. yes. Okay, I'll see you then. Yes, and we have to go. I have to cut him off because we've got so little time to go. Asia Pacific Currents coming up next and uh, we're going to play Peggy Seeger because uh, she was mentioned uh, in uh, respect to Laurie Carmichael. I didn't know they'd done a grand tour. At the east end of town At the foot of the hill You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.